0: Welcome to the Politics of Truth with me, Bob Crawford. This show is brought to you by OSIRIS, a network run by music fans for music fans. The goal of this weekly program is to empower our listeners with the information they need to make informed decisions as they follow and vote in the 2020 elections, be it the state primaries, caucuses, or the general election in November. Today, I'm speaking with my friend John Heilman, whose credits as a political journalist are so broad and deep, they barely sound believable. John is the best-selling author of Game Change and Double Down, the definitive books on the 2008 and 2012 presidential elections. He's also the co-host of Showtime's The Circus, a regular contributor to both MSNBC and NBC News, a longtime writer for Wired and New York Magazine, and co-founder of a new political media venture called The Recount. Rather than dissect the horse race of this still-nascent primary campaign, I want to speak with John about his unique perspective as one of the first political journalists of the digital age, having covered politics for Wired Magazine since its inception in the early 1990s. I, and I'm sure many of you, think a lot about how the Internet's permeation of every aspect of our lives has profoundly changed the way we interact with our fellow citizens, with political campaigns, and with the policy choices that, hopefully— Still, determine who wins those campaigns. So, we'll discuss where the Democratic primary stands after Iowa and New Hampshire and look ahead, but we'll also place this entire election in context of the transformative moment in history that we're all living through together. More so than ever, thanks to the information revolution that connects nearly everyone, for better and for worse. Something else that connects almost everyone, at least in my world, is music. And because John and I are both deep music lovers, And because this is an Osiris show, we'll discuss one of the best live performances either of us has ever seen, the story behind which shares many themes of the current political climate. Are you ready? I am. Let's start the show. John Holliman, welcome to the Politics of Truth. Bob,
1: I am thrilled to be here. How you doing, man?
0: I'm doing great, man. I'm doing really, really great. Uh, I've been keeping up with you. Uh, you are, you know what? You are uniquely qualified to cover this moment in our history.
1: <laughs> what? Cause I'm, cause I'm drunk or, because I'm because I'm drunker because I'm drunker stone most of the time.
0: Besides that. Did you you worked for Wired magazine in the early '90s?
1: I did. I uh, I was there pretty much uh, at the creation. I I think the first piece I wrote in Wired was in the third issue uh, in the magazine's history about the BBC and the beginning of the digital revolution um, and how it was going to affect television. So that was in 1993, maybe the fall of 1993. Um, and uh, after I you know started writing for them uh, at that. Point. And pretty quickly thereafter, uh, I went to work there I, on a full-time basis, became like the national affairs correspondent, I think was the title and covered the 96 campaign for wired. Um, I had like three jobs in 1996. I worked for wired magazine. Um, I also was writing for hot wired, which was the website that, uh, that wired had launched like at the very beginning of the web, really like mosaic had just come out and and Hotwired was one of the first kind of really seminal websites that existed. So the stuff that I wrote at Hotwired was literally the first campaign coverage written native for digital, for the web. Um, and then uh, I was also writing for The New Yorker at the same time. So I had like these these two, two homes, three jobs. I wrote monthly for the magazine, daily for the website, and like weekly for The New Yorker. So um, I was busy in 1996, and somehow I've stayed busy ever since.
0: You know what, John? And and, and our listeners, they're, they're music fans yeah. first, and um, they're going to want to hear about where we stand in the Democratic race here post-Iowa uh, and New Hampshire, and we're going to get to that. You know, I'm a historian, so I think if we go back to your beginnings at Wired, or go back to Wired, we go back to the 90s, I think we can give our listeners a greater perspective of what is going on right now in the politics of the United sure, States.
1: Sure, Bob, I'll tell you one thing just for your for your listeners. I'll say one other thing You know, we were planning to do this uh, This podcast record it here on this saturday afternoon a little later in the day and then out of nowhere I say this because of of your of who you are. You'll appreciate this um, Someone popped up a couple days ago and reminded me that david burns american utopia uh, was closing tomorrow on Broadway. Um, and I have seen, I saw the, I, I, went to the very first show of this, uh, of this show. Like when, when, when Burns started in March of 2018, uh, the very, very first show on this, of this, what was originally a concert tour and then became this Broadway show. Uh, we went down to Red Bank, New Jersey and saw the, the, the first time that they tried this whole thing out with the untethered, uh, musicians, um, you know, no wires. Everybody's, um, got, a. An instrument attached to their body, and so it's a fully like choreographed thing. We went and saw that the very first one, and then I caught him again uh, on ACL at ACL um, uh, in the fall of 2018. And when this person called, mentioned to me that they were closing tomorrow, I said, "Well, fuck, I got to get to that," um, and and was able to get a hold of a couple tickets for the five o'clock show this afternoon. So after I finish talking to you, I'm gonna go see David Byrne do the third to last performance of American Utopia here on Broadway. Um, you probably have heard the Spike Lee's making a movie out of that show. And I have to say, if you haven't seen it, it is fucking incredible.
0: John, it is the greatest concert I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. <laughs> and not, not that I'm a musician and I've seen a lot of like shows being on tour and going to festivals, but I'm also 48 years old. So I've seen a lot of concerts. I've been going since I was 12. And my wife and I—we don't go out much, and we don't go to concerts much. But I saw this coming to the uh, D Pack in Durham, North Carolina. I saw it coming like you know four months out. I bought the best tickets I could find, just thinking you know this would be a great night out. We'll we'll love this. Three songs in, we looked at each other, my wife and I, and we had smiles on our face that I have not seen in so long like it was just the most joyful event i've been to it, it it is the the deconstruction of the rock show
1: it's incredible i mean he is he is a genius obviously and and I, in the pantheon of musicians who have meant something to me in my life and the formation of my musical taste david burns like right up there in the in the very top of that of that upper strata of people who have like changed my life and you know i remember when i was a kid seeing stop making sense um at a movie theater in L.A. where I was from. And um, and I was not, I did not really know, I had not really followed Talking Heads. I was only, you know, whatever, 17 years old or whatever when when the uh, when Stop Making Sense came out. And um, I had not been a, I not I was not really into the, uh, to the, the earlier part of the Talking Heads oeuvre. Uh, and then I saw that show and, and was immediately turned on and then have seen David Byrne and talking heads in various configurations, maybe, you know, 20, 25 times over the course of my life, going to see this show. I like you and your wife, my wife and I, and a couple friends, we were in the second row in this, in this theater in Red Bank, New Jersey. And we were watching and like, we all about three songs in looked at each other and we're like, oh, this is really, sp- I mean, like, this is one of these concerts you're going to remember for the rest of your life. It's really special. And, um, uh, so I. Uh, so I, so I'm, I'm, I'm overwhelmingly thrilled to be able to see it one more time, and I'm glad that they're making a movie out of it because for all the people who didn't get a chance to see it live, uh, the idea that Spike Lee is going to do uh, a, a movie version of it, I think it'll be awesome for uh, to get it to a wider audience. Just like Stop Making Sense," obviously turned on millions and millions of people who were not familiar with. The Talking Heads of the CBGB's days uh, in the late seventies. I'll
0: tell you, and and
1: after that show, I tried to tell
0: people that it was the greatest concert I ever saw. And I've seen, you know, like like you, I've seen Springsteen, I've seen, I've seen great artists, but something about this incarnation of David Byrne and what he is presenting—it's so—it's so choreographed. It looks absolutely chaotic. But you know, right. the rehearsals, I just kept thinking, what were they? How how long did they rehearse this thing? Like, what was that like?
1: Right. Well, you've, you've seen a lot of great shows and you've also played a lot of great shows. And of course, your band, you know, everybody knows this already, but like you, you know, you guys are as great a set of musicians as you are. You are in your kind of apotheosis of, of the Avid brothers, is this alive? experience. And, you know, we've seen you guys, as you know, um, many times. And I, so you've not only have seen a lot of great shows, but you've played in a lot of great shows and I can't help but imagine that knowing what's involved in, in putting on a great show also just increases your appreciation for the genius, uh, in play, uh, with what David Byrne's doing. And and your phrase about the deconstruction of the rock concert, I think is exactly right. And he's always been both an incredible musician, but also a kind of high theoretician, right? And uh, and uh, an intellectual uh, at this game, which makes uh, it all the more amazing that he's so thoughtful and so uh, intellectually rigorous, but also that he makes music that's so joyful and that moves in the way that uh, all of his stuff is done from the Talking Heads days forward, and all the connections to world music that he's had, and the way in which he, you know, was I think one of the first people who really incorporated in a very explicit way, um, you know, all the African rhythms from uh, from Speaking in Tongues and and uh, and and the other stuff from Fear of Music, all that stuff, and, and from that oops. So it's like he's a transformative artist, and I think it's kind of awesome to see someone who has been so transformative at the top of their game in their sixties. And making something like this that is gonna be a lasting legacy, um, you know, can't help but just think that he, uh, as this thing comes to an end, he's sitting there kind of thinking, okay, I pulled this shit off.
0: I'll tell you, I'll make two quick points and yeah. then we'll
1: get on to. <laughs> we can talk about talking heads all day long I'm a, here.
0: But you know what? This isn't wasted tape. Let me tell you, and it's not tape, it's digital, but it's not wasted because, man, we, we, like, I think it's as valuable for us to talk about the artist that is David Byrne as it is to talk about the horse race. And in, in, in some ways, talking about David Byrne elevates humanity uh, a lot more than about what we're about, what we're about to talk about. But uh, three final points, the joy. Like I was second row as well, seeing his face yes. and seeing everyone on stage was absolutely joyful. Yes, no totally. one is phoning, phoning it in. They they know what they're doing. Yep. They're loving it. They 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 enjoy each other. Every member of that band is so talented, and, and 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 he looks like a kid in a candy store up there. Yep. Second point: the use of light. Mm. It's a very it's an open stage, and the way they use light uh, to create mood and variety. Uh, and to accentuate the choreography is is incredible. i
1: totally I totally agree. I totally agree. and and that's and again, just not to not to uh, blow smoke up your ass. But of course, one of the reasons why your band is so great as a live act is that you guys have that same sense of 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 joy. I've never seen an Aver Brothers show where it didn't look like you guys were having the time of your lives on stage. And I think that is part of why those shows are um are so. Uh, addictive for the people who are your fans is that they can see that you guys are not just uh, going through the motions or like you know you're not hacking it out up there you're you're actually having a huge amount of fun every time you play
0: well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you saying that right now in American politics uh, we're at this moment in American history we're at this moment, and mm-hmm. there's a historian from Harvard Jill Lapore yep she wrote. a a, a great narrative of American history from Columbus to Trump called these truths. She says that post nine 11 and the war on terror that, that came after it, America found itself in a moral crisis and it began, it began to abdicate a lot of the laws that, and the rules that it helped to establish post-World War II. She says to understand this moment in history you need to go back to the early nineties and the rise of the internet and the worldwide. Yeah. Yeah. The internet is everything that the post-World War II, World War II order is not. It is lawless. It's unregulated and it's unaccountable. And so when you were at Wired, there were a lot of people around like John Perry Barlow and uh, Lou Lou Rosetto,
1: yeah, Louis Rosetto, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah,
0: and and Newt Gingrich was even involved in a lot of this uh, early stuff with John Perry Barlow, and there was a sense that this new internet, right, this was a new country. This was was something. It wasn't a part of the United States. It was its a way of self-expression that had never existed before in human history. And in fact, John Perry Barlow wrote the declaration of independence of cyberspace. Um, I don't know if I'm quoting that correctly. These people were ex hippies. They were libertarians. They were ex anarchists. And you were right in the middle of all this. And in fact, in 1996, you were, you were an article for wired called old politics. RIP. Yeah. Yeah you remember that article? Oh, I do.
1: Yeah. I think that was... Yeah.
0: And so yeah. you set out to be the first digital campaign correspondent, but you quickly realized that, well, campaigns aren't really using this technology yet. Right. Um, but then what you found were, was that the old party system was breaking down. You wrote that you witnessed the obliteration of retail politics in Iowa, Iowa and New Hampshire, the descent of the GOP primary process into abject and often hilarious lunacy the death of the national conventions and the terminal disintegration of the two major parties, both as competent and effective political organizations and as the embodiments of any coherent set of ideas and beliefs. This is, this isn't two 2000 or 2020. This is 1996.
1: Well, I think, you know, there's a look there's a lot in that, uh, Bob, that's a big, uh, a whole big bunch of, of topics all rolled into one. It's one of the problems of talking about the role of the internet, um, as a, as a phenomenon in our society, I think, you know, one of the things about Wired was, you know, that there had been, you know, computer magazines before and, and there were uh, publications that covered the technology industry and covered its products. But, you know, when Lewis started Wired, his notion was very much in—he he thought of himself very much like as being Jan Wenner— um, in the sense that, you know, what Rolling Stone was about when, when, when Jan started it was it was about music, but it was really about the ways in which music was creating a new kind of culture and music had, you know, rock music had you know, profound implications in terms of um, our politics, in terms of the way society uh, organized itself, the way that people talk to each other, the whole creation of something like youth culture, which hadn't really existed in some sense before, uh, before rock and roll. Um, and that Rolling Stone was about more than rock music. It was about rock music's role in the world and how it was changing the world. And Lewis's view about the internet was very much the same. It was kind of like, you know, uh, he was explicit. It was like, I don't want to really do a magazine about, uh, about gadgets or about hardware or software. I want to do an, a, a magazine that's about the fact that, um, what he called the internet, uh, uh was a, he compared it to a Bengali typhoon. You know, that was kind of whipping across the world and, and changing everything from um from economics to finance to science to uh entertainment to politics. And and the, the wired idea was was it was I think the first place that really understood that the the technology was, you know, the beginning of a new phase in how Society and the economy and our politics kind of worked. So, in the same ways, you know, we we were that moment was the moment when everybody kind of first twigged to the idea that you know, just like there was a the agrarian world had eventually given way to the industrial revolution, and then we had had an industrial era that the that with the birth of the internet and the web in particular as a kind of way for consumer mass consumer. Mass consumer society to access the internet, which had pre-existed the web, but the web kind of opened it up, and that that moment was the moment where we're like, oh, so this is it. This is the next thing we're going from. As we went from agrarian to industrial, we're now going from from industrial to information, the information revolution, and the information economy, and the two kind of pieces of that that were connected. One of them was the notion that the that this was everything was getting digitized, and and there was the creation of this space um, that was all the things you said a little while ago that cyberspace was a, was a, was a, a, kind of a, a terrain unto itself that, you know, kind of was transnational and it wasn't about countries anymore. And it wasn't about, um, about kind of the sovereignty of how, uh, we'd organized ourselves, you know, for hundreds and hundreds of years, but that the, that, that world, the virtual world existed on a separate plane and that there would be different rules that would exist there and all that kind of stuff. And the other thing about, about the information revolution was not only was stuff gonna get digitized and was the power of Moore's Law and Metcalf's law and networking and super fast, super powerful computing getting cheaper and cheaper. That was one side of it. The other thing was that it was really creating, really delivering the notion of what McLuhan had talked about when he talked about the global village. So globalization as a phenomenon that would be transformative um economically and politically that was also the birth really of that. So that moment early 90s when um when the internet boom happened it was pretty clear i think to people who were looking at this that it wasn't like just about, you know, computers, right? It was about this other much larger set of changes that were going to be spawned by it and that was what wired was about and that was the kind of sensibility that i tried to bring to how i thought about and wrote about politics was that, you know, Everything was changing in a really profound way, and the one thing that wasn't changing was politics and and the the, the two party system and the whole way in which that was organized and had been kind of set up was really really ill suited to adapting to the kind of radical rapid transformation that was happening in the economy as a result of the internet and that, you know, my coverage in 96 and then from then on those ideas kind of informed the stuff like what you wrote, what you, the thing you read, which I think was the piece I read at the very end of the 96 campaign where you sort of could see Mm -hmm. that the world was in a state of pretty profound dislocation and like a new thing was being born. And that thing was the information revolution and the information age. Um, and that our political culture and our political institutions were kind of post-war industrial era, artifacts that were very quickly going to look very outmoded. And 96 was I think the year where you realized that like you could see the it was the kind of the the, the watershed moment, right? There was the stuff that came before that and then after that things would be pretty tr- dramatically different, and I would say, you know, without filibustering anymore that everything that's happened since then, um, from the birth of like tribalism at a very extreme level, the polarization that's kind of gripped our politics ever since then, the the, the way in which politics is organized, the the rise of grassroots, um, bottom-up politics being harnessed by campaigns like Barack Obama's and others, all of that stuff in some ways is kind of the falling action of the birth of that information revolution, that information age, all that stuff. The webs rise. Um, everything that's happened since then for the last 20 years, basically the last 25 years, you can kind of trace back to that sort of big disjuncture. Um, I think that's not just a political thing, but it touches every aspect of the global economy, every aspect of global culture, and certainly everything that uh, you and I could possibly talk about here today.
0: Getting back to Lapore, would you say that that it's kind of the old order just couldn't hang? Yeah. And what we've seen in, in the United States, post 9/11, and really with the rise of Trump, would you say that Trump, if he's done nothing else, he's smashed the post World War II
1: period? I don't really think of it quite that way, and 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 I think the reason I don't is because I think of Trump as more of a symptom than a cause. I mean the conditions that allowed Trump to happen. And when I say Trump to happen, what do I mean? I mean that a guy who was a reality television star who was had never really been a Republican, um, didn't really believe anything that the Republican Party in, in its post-war incarnation believed, you know, from... Um, you know the belief in alliances and 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 strong defense built on on international alliances and inter- international cooperation, free trade, um, against debt and deficits. A lot of the stuff that was kind of like what the Republican Party had meant from World War II until now, Trump didn't believe any of those things. He wasn't re- a Republican in any meaningful way, and he was able to stage a hostile takeover of the Republican Party in 2016. And that now that takeover is complete and he has transformed the party into mostly a cult. But the, the fact that he was able to do it and not just do it, but do it pretty easily is exactly the result of what Lapora I think, in and, and what I would say, right, which is, you know, the party had already been hollowed out by that point. It was like ripe for being taken over by a populist demagogue because it was not really, um, it couldn't hang as you put it with the scale of change that was happening in the country, demographic change, technological change, all that stuff. By the time that Trump came along, the party was really just like an empty shell. And so it was not shocking. In some ways, it was totally shocking. In another way, it was completely unsurprising that someone would come along eventually and just say, I'm going to take over this thing, knock it over on its side, and then rebuild it in my own image. I think that's all true. But I i don't like, you know, Trump to me, as I say, is more of a symptom than a cause because that the things that led to that moment that allowed Trump to exist and take over the way he did, those are things that are kind of the fallout from the kind of larger scale changes that, um, that we first started talking about. So I think of, you know, Trump as being, you know, when the history of all this is written, I, I'm not sure that I think Trump will have caused really anything. Um, but I do think that Trump is kind of emblematic of the, 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 ina- the inability of both parties to, to adapt to the kind of change that's been happening in the country over the course of the last 20 or 30 years. And I'd say, you know, at the same time in 2016, the fact that Bernie Sanders, who was very much like Trump in only one way, and I don't want the Bernie people freak out when I say this, but, you know, Bernie Sanders almost won the Democratic nomination in 2016. He was not a Democrat, just like Trump was not a Republican. He was an independent Democratic socialist who rolled into the 2016 campaign there was a dominant frontrunner in Hillary Clinton who was very much a product of the old order. And Bernie's um, populist grassroots um, revolution, by self-styled, right, almost knocked Hillary Clinton off in that, you know, his, his – from the left, his progressive populist kind of non-neoliberal, not mainstream democratic impulses were – sort of the mirror image of Trump's, right? And that told you that in 2016, a race where uh, people told you going into it that it was going to be Jeb Bush versus Hillary Clinton. The fact that there was, that Jeb Bush, you know, was not only not the nominee, but, you know, was easily trounced by Trump and that Hillary Clinton was almost beaten by Bernie Sanders gives you a sense of the fact that it's not just the Republican Party, that the apparatus of the Republican Party was R- ripe for a hostile takeover, but the apparatus of the Democratic Party was also ripe for a hostile takeover, and I think they're both kind of decayed and atrophied for a lot of the same reasons.
0: Would Bernie lose 48 states or would he win?
1: Oh, if he's I the nominee no in 2020, I mean, I, I, I really have no clue. I think it'd be very hard for a nominee, given the the baked inness of the support. There's not a lot of undecided voters out there, right? We know that you know in this tribal, polarized era that you know, whoever the Democratic nominee is, is going to get at least 45% of the vote. And whoever the Republican nominee is, in this case, Trump for sure is going to get 45% of the vote. And there's a lot of interesting questions about what will happen in the given states that are up for grabs. But I don't really see, I think it's hard to imagine any Democratic nominee losing 48 states. Um, I think it's, uh, uh, it's just not, the blue states are so blue that, there's not a world in which you know California or New York is going to end up not uh, being behind whoever the Democratic nominee is, and I'd say that's true. Bernie Sanders or anybody who the party nominates, I think the question of whether Bernie uh, Sanders is capable of beating Donald Trump is unknown and and at this moment unknowable. Um, there's like too much that still has to happen um, over the course of the next few months. We'll have to see, you know, whether first of all whether Bernie can be the nominee. But in the process of finding out whether Bernie's the nominee, we're also going to learn a lot. I think about um, about how big that uh, movement is, um, and you know, you've seen him in two in two states in Iowa, and New Hampshire, basically getting about a quarter of the vote. Um, um, in New Hampshire, he got half the number of votes that he got in 2016. So Bernie Sanders can't can't in the Democratic Party if he can't you know, expand that level of support. Um, it's going to tell you a lot about, uh, about the limits of his potency. But we're going to have to see whether, how that plays out. And I think we'll know a lot more about how strong a general election candidate Bernie Sanders might be about three months from now. We've actually seen him go through this race. That's what these races are for, you know, as you you figure you, it, it's too early right now to say, I'd say, you know, any of the Democrats who are currently in the race, it's, it's very hard to judge. Especially at a time where there's this much much chaos and this much um, uncertainty, and on one side, and then on the other side, so much that it is baked into the cake already, um, it's it's way 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 premature to, to say that anybody would either be uh, a, a, a prohibitive favorite in the race, or to say anybody is absolutely certainly going to lose the race. I think you know anybody who makes those kind of predictions at this point has not learned the lessons that they should have learned from 2016, when a lot of us, including me, Thought that it was impossible for uh, Trump to beat Hillary Clinton, and then we learned otherwise on election night. So, Biden,
0: Bloomberg, Bernie—just for alliteration's sake—Amy, <laughs> yeah. uh, Amy Klobuchar, and Pete Buttigieg. Do they all have a shot? Do you really? Do you, does Biden still have a shot? Does Elizabeth Warren have a shot? Well,
1: I'd say that 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 Joe Biden, and Elizabeth Warren, um, are are on the ropes for sure, and. And they're both, um, you know, their performance in these first two races, though uh, not, uh, I would say, not conclusively dispositive, as in like they're dead. They're both going to put up a fight. I mean, Elizabeth Warren has strong organizations in a bunch of states. She's still got a decent amount of money. Um, And so she's going to fight on. But certainly if I'm if I was on Elizabeth Warren's team, I would be concerned. And I think they all are uh, that that the air has kind of come out of that balloon. And certainly in the Biden campaign, there's no question but that you know the South Carolina primary is for them uh, a do or die thing, um, and and you know they have believed for a long time that that Joe Biden's support among African American voters was going to prove durable. Um, I think there's some pretty good reasons to think that that's not going to be true, and that um, that African American voters who are the most important constituency in the Democratic Party, the most clear-eyed, the most uh, sophisticated, I would say about their uh, about how they view politics, that for that cohort, uh, that is for whom debt, for whom Donald Trump is an existential emergency, um, that they're, they are very, very focused on figuring out who the person is who would be the strongest candidate to take on trump, and so just looking at the way biden has um, has performed in these early states, I think is already sending ripples of doubt out across the african American community, and you know you're already starting to see his support uh, among African Americans nationally and in South Carolina is already starting to slip so look i mean both of those candidates i i wouldn't i wouldn't want to count them out uh, but there's no doubt that uh, for all of the uncertainty that still exists, the muddle that still exists in the Democratic race right now, where there's really kind of two front runners in this, in, in Sanders and Buttigieg, um, you've got Mike Bloomberg having spent now $350 million and on a path to spending a billion uh, in this nomination fight uh, and, and gaining ground rapidly in the national polling. There's some strong candidates. Amy Klobuchar kind of came out of nowhere and is the kind of candidate who... Will make I think a spirited argument for herself as someone who um, has a, a claim to being the most electable and and the one who might be strongest against Trump. Those candidates are all still very much in this race. Um, uh, Biden and and Warren I think are not out of the race, but they're hanging by a thread.
0: I got to say, when we complete this interview, my wife and I are going to go downtown and we're going to early vote. We're here in North Carolina. Yeah. voting opened up. Doing a your day democratic or two ago. duty, Bob. Good for you. Absolutely, but if, here's the question: All right, you gonna, gotta, I, Are you going to tell, li- you tell your listeners who you're voting for? I'm not. I'm not. Okay, I'm not. All right, secret ballot. Um, I won't if, ask. I'll tell you what. I, I'll i I'll tell if you tell. Never voted my life. Are you serious? Never once. You, so you are a true. Uh, you are you are a true independent. You are a. A true political journalist, because I've heard you say I'm not a Republican, I'm not a Democrat.
1: You really aren't. I've never voted for nor yeah. given money to uh, any candidate. Now, anybody who's followed my work over the, over my thirty year career, in which I've written hundreds of columns and 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 consumed hundreds of hours on television, knows that it's not like I'm not without opinions. Like I have a lot of opinions. I have a lot of views about uh, about policies, and and I have a lot of views about candidates. Uh, and, and and elected officials, so yeah, I, I make no pretense to objectivity. That's not what I'm what I'm trying to convey. And people often say, "Well, you know, you're you don't vote because you're trying to you know pretend like you're objective and and uh, and that's bullshit. There's no such thing as objectivity. I agree with that. I don't think there is such thing as objectivity, and I'm not trying to pretend I'm objective. What I am trying to pre- what I am trying to be committed to is the notion that it's a very bad idea I think for journalists to be on a team and to have a rooting interest in a in a in an election, um, to be on the side of one of the candidates or one of the parties, I think is a, is a uh, is, is a compromised position. And and I don't begrudge any journalist who thinks that they can vote um, and and then set that aside and still be fair minded in their work. I think many of them do, and many of them are. But for me, at least, it's always been the cleanest way to try to be, which is to say, you know, I have opinions, I have views, I make them clear, I lay them all on the table. Um, there's no one who could have paid attention to my work over this, uh, over my career and not get the notion that I'm left of center and not right of center. Um, there's no ambiguity about that, but I do think it's, it's, you know, when I, when you write a book, you know, I've written a couple of presidential campaign books, as you know, um, and I would go, uh, out and speak about, you know, game changer or, or double down and people in the audience would get up and say, you know, well, who, who, who did you vote for? It's very, useful. And I don't mean that in a minor way, in a trivial way, it's very useful to be able to say that you didn't vote for anybody. And, and I mean it in the sense that, you know, if I would not want to say in a room like that, if somebody asked me who I voted for, having read the book, having read one of my books, I would not want to uh, try to play hide the ball with people. Um, because that would raise sort of suspicions about your biases. Um, and I wouldn't want to, uh, if I did vote for someone, uh, if I said, well, I voted for Barack Obama or I voted for John McCain, immediately everybody who's read the book now reads the book through a different set of glasses. They're like – they they're now – they think, well, everything this guy's written, he's an Obama voter, and he so he wrote the book uh, in a different way. He's a McCain voter, so he wrote the book in a different way. It's just m- much easier and better, I think, to be in a position where I can say, um, you know, again – I've written a lot of things about both of these candidates and you can see what's on the page. And if you think that I'm biased, you know, make that determination on the basis of what you're reading. But I don't want to, I want to keep it as pure as I can and not have my, what people know about my vote or my donations or whatever, if, they, if I made them, I don't want to have those color the view of the work. Um, and so it's always been, I thought, at least for me, the more comfortable place to be. So my wife and I were driving
0: down 40 I-40 here in North Carolina. It goes the whole length of the state. The other day, and uh, the Mike Bloomberg tour bus passed us. Yeah. And I took a picture of it. Yeah. I posted it on Instagram and I got all kinds of comments. Positive Most of them were not very nice. Uh, most of them were pretty negative, and in fact, one person said, "If that's who I'm voting for, if that's who I support, she's going to have to find a new favorite band." Which tells me either she's not really a fan, a big time fan of the band, or she really, really hates Mike Bloomberg. I'm not sure which. Right.
1: I mean, it's funny. Um, you know, obviously, I, I, I've covered Mike. Um, uh, I covered him before I worked for him. I, you know, I worked at Bloomberg uh, for three years, as you know, um, and so I've seen him both as a boss and as a mayor of my city. Uh, where I live, and so I have a lot of you know, I, and I, I'm very familiar with the people who are running that campaign. Um, I will say that I I was very bearish on it in the sense, in my my sense of its prospects were were pretty bearish when he decided to get in late. Um, and I think there are huge problems that he's going to confront if he starts getting votes in these races that he's competing in, then including in North Carolina, as you say, he was just down there. The circus, my my Showtime show was with him, in fact, in North Carolina on Thursday shooting. Uh, my co-host Alex Wagner was shooting with him, and that's going to be in our episode on Sunday. Um, but I, I think he's got. There's going to be a lot of issues that are going to get raised. One of them is going to be, you know, plutocrats not super popular in the Democratic Party right now. the 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 perception that he's trying to buy the election. Um, I think is going to raise a lot of hackles for a lot of people, um, uh, and that's going to be something he's going to have to overcome. Because the truth is, he is kind of trying to buy the election. It's not like you know that's what's going on here, right? Um, at the same time, having Ben bearish, you know, he has a lot of points, a lot of views that are, uh, whether it's on, you know, things that he's getting a lot of heat for right now on like the stop and frisk policy in New York, he's apologized for that now, but there's a lot with, uh, there's a lot of questions he's going to have to answer to African American voters all over the country. So a lot of questions, a lot of issues about Mike Bloomberg, but I will tell you, Bob, that I have been struck given all of that and all of my skepticism about his ability to be the Democratic nominee, it has been sort of stunning to watch him rise from zero to sort of, he's now kind of in a statistical tie with Joe Biden in second place nationally in the polling. And notably last week, there was a a Quinnipiac poll that said that he is up to 22% support among African-American voters. Now, you know, that's a sort of a stunning thing, not just because he went from zero to 22 percent and took away a bunch of the support that Joe Biden had. But again, you know, stop and frisk is in his biography. You know, this week we heard a bunch of audio that came out of him saying some pretty odious things about stop and frisk defending the policy. And yet if you go and talk to black voters and I guarantee you down in your, in your home state, if you went and talked to some African-American voters, there are a fair number. I'm not saying all of them, but there's a fair number who will say to you, you know what? I know he's not great on race. And that's, I'm not trying to tell you I'm not troubled by that. But as I said earlier, Donald Trump is an existential emergency for our community on multiple levels. And all we care about, I'm speaking now as an African-American voter, all we care about is who's going to beat Donald Trump. And they look at Mike Bloomberg and they say, he's flawed, but they're all flawed. He's done some dumb shit, but they've all done some dumb shit. Do I like stop and frisk? I do not. But the guy's worth $60 billion and he's the one potential candidate or potential nominee who will be able to match Donald Trump and in fact exceed Donald Trump on the financial level come the fall and that money that he has and his ability to deploy it and run you know, a, a campaign in all 50 states, uh, fully resourced. You know, with billions of dollars at his disposal, there's a lot of voters who are looking at that and saying, maybe. You know, maybe. Um, so we'll see. I have no idea. It's never been done before, Bob. It's like the notion of a candidate who does not take part in the early contests blows off Iowa, blows off New Hampshire, blows off South Carolina, blows off Nevada, and just starts on Super Tuesday. We've never seen that before. A guy who's trying to from the very, you know, skip the early contest and go straight to the big states and run a national campaign with essentially unlimited resources. There is no precedent for that. So um, we, we have no history to look to as a guide. But I do think that um, given how much large chunks of the Democratic electorate look at Donald Trump and really believe that getting him out of office, beating him this November is not just an an imperative, but an imperative where, you know, their lives depend on it. I think that Mike will now, I'm now of the view that I think he will at least get a a good hard look from Democratic voters who I would have said six months ago, there was no way. I now think, you know, he's going to at least, you know, he's going to get consideration from a lot of people and it just makes this race all the more complicated and hard to predict.
0: Well, John, we are going to go through this race with you. We're going to be watching you on the circus. We'll be watching you on NBC and MSNBC. And we really appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to uh, to talk with us today. And uh, as a friend, man, thank you so much. And enjoy David Byrne.
1: Bob, I, I appreciate uh, being on the show. I'm sorry. Uh, I would. I feel like you and I could probably do like a podcast a week. We have uh, a lot to talk about. And I didn't mean to filibuster too much here. I'm happy to come back and uh, do this again with you. Anytime you ask, I'm, you know, I'm an enormous fan. Uh, and I'm proud to call you a friend. And uh, I'd be delighted to talk to you anytime you want to have me back on down the line. Uh, just say the word and I'll be there. It's
0: too late to change. Politics of Truth is brought to you by Osiris Media, produced by Bob Crawford and Adam Kaplan. Our executive producer is RJB. The program was mixed and mastered by Brad Stratton, artwork by Mark Dowd. For other great podcasts that connect you to the artist and music you love, please visit OsirisPod.com.